being distributed and we'll commence with telling you we don't propose to get over that entire outline. I would like for you to, there's three items in it that I'd like for you to read sometime before the week's over, and that is the, the comment from the book of Revelation by Brother Paul Billington, the excerpt from the Logos magazine by Brother Mansfield, and a writing on, from Brother Roberts, which was printed in the Christadelphian in the year 1900. Uh, and it was also, I believe, originally written in 1872. I think you, they may convey at least some of uh, some thoughts that I think are worthwhile as to where, to where Christadelphia is in our time. Uh, as far as the, outli the outline, the first three pages comprising the approaching end of the age, uh, we, we will touch upon a good deal of that, hopefully, in some order. There is, after that, the list of foreshadowing events that we went over yesterday very briefly. I'd like for you to just ruminate through your mind those, those events, and we will touch on maybe a, a, a little bit of that today also. Following is an order of events to come, which we think is probably the best available to us in our time. It's, none of this, by the way, is original with me, so you don't have to worry about hurting my feelings if you don't want to take care of it. Uh, I, I happen to believe that order of events is absolutely superb, and I would com recommend it to your, your prayerful and studious consideration. Uh, we'll talk about a good deal of it probably the last two days of this week. Uh, following that are the seven military campaigns of David. Remember yesterday we talked about the expanded borders of Solomon's empire, and it's worthwhile just to look on that. We again believe this is, is prophetic. Uh, okay. We stopped yesterday discussing the, the 40 years of conquest transition to extend to the complete establishment of the great white throne in Zion. When the word will go forth from Jerusalem and the law from Zion, as depicted in uh, Isaiah 2 and in Micah 4, again, we would suggest to you that the word from Jerusalem and the law from Zion are not poetic expressions, but rather they have significant meanings regarding the law that will go forth to rule all nations and the word that will go forth to teach those who need to be taught of the families of the earth, including the Jewish families that need to be taught. Uh, we'll hopefully talk about that throughout the, the, the week. Latter-day believers, as we suggested yesterday, were told in in Luke, that when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. We, we might like to just turn to, to that for a moment in Luke 21. There's something about this that... In fact, if you would... Hold Luke 21 and turn over to Matthew 24. We want to follow these two uh, 
to, to make a, a point as to where we are heading. Uh, you notice, and again, we remember that Luke was written to the Gentiles. Matthew was written to the Jews living in the land. Okay, to complete your, your thought, Mark was written to the, to the Jews of the dispersion. Okay, and John to the believer. But we're, we're focusing here on Luke and in Matthew. All right, in Matthew, I mean, I'm sorry, in Luke 21, 28, 27, let's read, it says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the pronoun, they shall see. 28 says, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Alright, so we have they and we have your. Well, the they obviously re refers to the world or some portion of it that they're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. That, I would suggest to you, is the multitudinous Christ. As he approaches the city of Jerusalem, or at least it may be in the, Parab in the Arabian Peninsula, but he's going to be seen by these people. Now, independently of that, we have at this moment, at, at, toward the close of the Olivet Prophecy, an encouragement that when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads. They, those two verses are not chronological, but they are, one is an exhortation to you and me, the other is a reference to Christ appearing uh, upon the Roman, upon, in the world, let's say, upon the Sea of Nations. Okay, now over in Matthew 21, uh, Matthew 24, he says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Notice the similarity. But they, the tribes of the earth mourning, that's the Jewish people. Remember, this is written to the Jews. The Jews who live there in, in, in the state of Canaan when Christ was there, and what we would call Galilee at the time, and, and Jerusalem. Okay, now in 31, it says, He shall send his angels with a great cloud, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, of, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now that, brothers, sisters, and fellow students, is the millennial end gathering of the Ephraimites, the dispersed of the Jews. It is the same time as, Matthew, as Isaiah 11, 11. And if you would turn there for a moment. Uh, we are told in Isaiah 11, 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. All right, millennial ingathering, uh, where it refers to the second time. The first time probably was the saving of the tents of Judah, which we'll refer to later. Remember, it, we're told he shall save the tents of Judah first. I right, turn to Revelation 18.4, same period. And it's more provable in 18.4 because here we have 
uh, an order given us. Notice in verse 4 it says, I, saw, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now if you notice in verse uh, 2, we have the pronouncement of the fall of Babylon. If you were, and we will look at this later in the week, but Revelation 14 deals with the, the, the seven thunders. The first thunder is the fall of the, the first thunder is the everlasting gospel. The second thunder is the pronouncement of the fall of Babylon. And when we move to the 18th chapter, there's a recap because we're now t being told the destruction of the great harlot system. And after they fall, there is this appeal again to Ephraim to come out of her my people, and my people there are the Jewish believers. Okay? Now, if you have a... That tells us kind of where we're headed. All right, we're back again to 40 years. We, uh, when we stopped yesterday, speaking of the 40 years, we weren't quite through with There's a couple other points we want to make. Our Lord described the time as in the days of Noah. There again in Matthew uh, 24, 37, 38, 39. We're all familiar with it. I don't think we need to look at it specifically. Uh, he, he tells them that as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage and until the day that Noah entered to the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Okay. If we look back in Genesis 6, uh, and you might turn that up. Uh, I think everybody, uh, I, this becomes very elementary to some of you, and for that, uh, I can only say elementary sometimes helps us all. Uh, verse 5 says, and, the Lord, and, the, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the heart of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Well, that period of violence, I don't think any of us have any problems understanding that that's the time in which we live. It's a fitting description of our time. And so the Lord caused it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. The parallel is in Revelation 14.20 where it speaks of blood coming up to the horse's bridles by a space of 1,600 furlongs. And we are familiar that if we square 1,600, we get 40, and it points to the 40 years of judgment. Now again, you recall in, in, the, in the days of the flood, we had, we had the, the symbol of the dove, and we want to mention that just for a moment. You might mark it in, in the 8th chapter of Genesis. Remember, the law, uh, Noah sent the dove out of the ark three times. The first time he went out, it says it found no rest for his soul or his feet, and he came back. The second time he went out, he found an olive branch, and he brought it back to Noah. And each of these intervals, we're told, are seven, were seven years, seven days, and he sent him out again. The third time, we're told that 
the dove went out and came back no more. Now we would suggest to you that this has a, a representation and it's, I shorted you in your outline because Brother Mike was running out of paper. Uh, but seven times would equal three periods of 2,520 years. Uh, Grattan Guinness in uh, the approaching end of the age points out that there are three 2,520 or seven time periods. One is from the creation to the exodus. One is from the, fall, from the flood to the fall of Jerusalem. And the third is from the captivities through the vials. And if you'll record, to the vials would take us to the, to the time of the advent. Uh, if any of you are further interested, you can look in, in Grattan Guinness's work. I think it's important because it probably tells us something else that we need to know from Isaiah 60. And if you look at Isaiah 60, and now we're talking about the dove, okay? And verse 8 says, Who are these that flies a cloud and is the doves to their windows? Okay, we suggest to you that, that, that there is a representation in Isaiah 60 of the rainbowed angel depicted originally with the concept of the dove that the third leaving of the dove from the ark to go forth and return no more. Okay, you can, you can think about that. Okay, who are these that fly as a cloud as it does to the windows? That's at the time of Isaiah 60, the time of the early days of the millennial period. When the temple is being built and the Jews of the diaspora are being gathered. And remember we've discussed in those verses in Isaiah, Revelation, and Matthew the regathering of the diaspora Jew, which we'll talk about later anyway. Behold the fig tree, the nation of Israel, and all the trees, which we believe to be probably in large measure Arabic trees. And we're going, we might make a note, if you look in uh, Isaiah 41, I better turn that up for you. Let's take a look at Isaiah 41. We'll return to this thought later anyway. But for a moment, you know, in, in the closing, well, not the closing either, it's in the 19th verse, we, we, we read, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitter tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, the pine, and the box tree together. Uh, if any of you happen to read The Way to Jerusalem by Brother Pierce, Graham Pierce, he, he speaks of that being seven trees, uh, seven nations. We would suggest to you, being in the wilderness and in the desert, we think of that country of Arabia to the south of Israel, and they are Arabic today. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. We want to get to our morning subject. Again, Christ's statement that this generation that saw the, this budding will not pass till all things be fulfilled. And again, it's been the, the thought of Christadelphians, I suppose, for 140 or so years that, that gener that's the generation that saw the budding of the fig tree and however we count time, we are well into a, a generation period. Again, history and prophecy. From the crucifixion of Christ, in 40 years Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. In our time, 40 years to see the destruction of the wicked and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and Zion. 
The sign to spiritual Israel is always natural Israel, the Jew. You and I view happenings in Israel and the nations to tell us where we are in the prophetic timetable. Nebuchadnezzar knew that seven times would pass, and again that's 360 as a time, time seven, would pass, and at the end his kingdom would cease and the praise would be given to the Most High One, the Most High L. And if you would note in Daniel 4, 34 and 37, remember after, after Nebuchadnezzar had had his period of derainment and he came back, he made this praise these words he said to God who he recognized was the God of heaven. We would suggest that that is a foreshadowing of the kings of the earth in their final submission to Christ and the saints, the multitudinous Christ. Okay, the time, this time is further indicated in Jonah by the king of Nineveh repenting in sackcloth and ashes at the teaching of Jonah. And we'd like to turn to Jonah chapter 3 for a moment. And, uh, again, this is part of this foreshadowing uh, I've got to find Jonah here. Uh, this is a part of the foreshadowing similar to the events that you have in your outline. See, in each of these, in its own way, portrays or foreshadows latter-day events for you and I. That's why we have to, you know, we have to look at the Scriptures in a composite, from a composite viewpoint. We can't pick out one verse or two verses. We have to look at the whole picture. And that's one of the points I think will come through this week. Alright, in Jonah 3, the first verse says, The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, okay, when you see that word second time, the first thing you should think of is, it must be associated with the second advent. Okay? And if you think of Jonah, you know, you know, he was swallowed by a whale and a great fish, and it, you know, he, Christ himself at his first advent said that that, that was a symbol of his death. As Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, so he would be in the... I'm sorry, as Jonah was in the whale's stomach for three days and three nights, he would be, or the Son of Man would be, in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So, brothers and sisters, we learn that... Now, let, let me tell you something to make it real easy for us to see where we head. We have people around today that tell us that he wasn't in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Only a part of it. Well, let me tell you, if you understood Jonah, you would understand the first advent. Okay? All right, now we want to move to the second advent. Here is, now you know the majority of what we call amended Christadelphians, I shouldn't say the majority, many, Christa, many amended Christadelphians will tell you that this is a three-day campaign to Nineveh to teach the truth. All right, well, you, we all know you can't teach the truth in three days. But what is really being taught? Well, look, Jonah had a problem. He, he, in fact, he'd already had his problem. He didn't want to go. But Jonah was to, to put forth a message, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, verse 5, and proclaimed a great fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And you know, we often have prayers frequently to be associated in the day when all men from the least to the greatest would know 
of, of the great eternal God of Israel. Okay? Well, this is, what, this is what's being foreshadowed. For then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid his robe before him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not be feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto Yahweh. Yea, let them I'm having a, turn every man from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Okay? A foreshadowing of the effect upon the sheep nations in the millennial period. Okay? Forty, you notice the second time, the 40 days of judgment that he's going to, and then the repentance of the king of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh. Now remember, Christ again also mentions this. He says that the men of Nineveh would, you know, hang their heads in shame at the behavior of the Jews of the 42nd generation. And see, that again was not only a historical fact, but it was a prophetic event. And it foreshadowed. So therefore, when you and I look at the Scriptures, we have to always, you know, we ask ourselves a couple of questions. And the first one probably is the time. The second one is the location. And if we can fit location and time, we can generally understand what's being taught to us. Again, a type of these days will shortly begin at the time of the preaching of the millennial good news to the, as depicted in Revelation 14.5. The men of Nineveh are a type of those who submit to the rainbow angel message. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in latter day events. We too want to remember, and now we shuffle to, to Daniel, we want to remember when the image strikes in the when the image stands in Daniel 2 to be struck by the stone power, it is standing. Remember that. We'll talk about it more. Daniel 2.34 and 2.35, I believe. It is in the days of the toes represented by the ten kings who, in the words of Apocalypse 17.12, are seen as ten horns who would give their power and strength to the beast for one hour, that is, thirty years, and they would make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb would overcome them. Right? And we might just... Well, well, we'll refer to that later anyway. So let's... Uh, thinking in terms of 17.12 of, of the Apocalypse, I think maybe we should read it because it's the, it's the time to which the, the striking would occur. Uh, I think everybody would be familiar with it, but it's worthwhile to read it, I believe. All right. John was told, And the horns which thou seest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Okay, so we, we have a depiction. Ten kings, no kingdom as yet. When they receive their power, they will assign it to the beast. They then will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. 
Okay, let's look at our world. Now, and we have, this is our world, okay? And this is the, what we want to talk about. We want to talk about the EEC, that's the European Economic Community. We want to talk about the Vatican and the Pope. We want to talk about Russia. We want to talk about the Arabs, and we're going to define them as Damascus or Syria, and Edom, Moab, and Ammon. I hope we all understand these are, this is north and this is south. And we want to talk about Israel and the captions of Judah and Ephraim. All right, now, I want you to fix in your minds, you know, what, this big yellow spot, which probably should be red, is Russia. All right, we have the African continent. We have Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and it right in the little green spot, which I'm sure none of you can see, that's, that's the present state of Israel. All right, now, if we had to look at 1989 and 1988, the most significant thing that's happened has been the reunification of Europe. And we use the word reunification because Europe in the days of Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Empire, was unified. It was a, a and, and I want you to think in terms of that's what is we are moving toward, okay? We also want to think in terms of the solidifying of position between communism and Catholicism. To have you want, if you want to say between Russia and the church, fine, okay? Remember, the church is not the ecclesia. And as Brother Thomas says, and I can't emphasize, and Jim Stanton, you remember, made this point at Arkansas. That's one word that ought to be stricken from our vocabulary, is C-H-U-R-C-H. It is improper, and let me tell you, when you use it, you may end up frying with them, okay? So, the, we're talking about the Roman church. We, thirdly, the Russia and Syria are drawing closer together. Again, I want you to think, you know, here we have Russia, here we have Syria. You notice just north of Israel, okay? We, so we think in terms of the reunification of Europe, the solidifying of the position between communism and Catholicism, Russia and Syria drawing closer, and fourthly, and never to be left out, is Israel continues to dwell in unbelief. During the week, we'll make a lot of references to Israel because we look at them today as a very divided people. Remember, they're divided within, they're divided without. Okay? Isaiah 11, which we, you can look at in your leisure, speaks of the time of Ephraim and Judah envying and vexing each other. Well, you know, I thought that was true in 83. I'm telling you, it's really true today. They are beginning to cut off funds between the diaspora and the Israelis. And so nobody misunderstands me. I want to give you an example. There is a young Jewish boy. He's born in Brooklyn. He makes Aliyah to Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. He, the moment he makes Aliyah, that means he moved to Jerusalem, he becomes Judah. Okay? He was Ephraim. When he lived in New York and he was born in Brooklyn, he was an Ephraimite. Okay, he was a Jew of the diaspora. Right, let's take the same item in reverse. A young Jew born in Tel Aviv decides to marry a young Jewish girl in New York, and he catches a boat and goes to New York. He was Judah. He has now become Ephraim. 
It has it is strictly according to where you live. Okay, now those who live in Israel are Judah. Those who live in New York are Ephraim. And there has nothing to do with the tribes. And you know, Christadelphians have historically said there ain't nothing left but Judah and Benjamin. That's not true. There's plenty of Jews who live in Richmond who trace their, their genealogy to Reuben or to Levi or to Simeon. Okay? But that has nothing to do with it. If they live in Richmond today, they can call themselves anything they want to. They're Ephraimites. Okay? Now, to, to make this point, before we move further, I want you to take a look at, the, at Hosea 11.12. Now, any of you who are interested in pursuing this subject, take the book of Hosea and, and read it. And read it intently and with your minds really working it. Now, remember, Zechariah says, that the Lord shall save the tents of Judah first. That's not hard to understand because those living in Israel, obviously he's going to save first. He's not going to save some guy living in New York. He's going to save the ones living in Judah. But take a look at this verse, eleven twelve of Hosea. Ephraim compasses me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. You tell me the time. It's obviously the time after... Judah has been saved. Ephraim is still living. It's before that call that we mentioned or we looked at in, in Revelation 18.4, Isaiah 11.11, or Matthew 24.31. Okay, before that time. All right? I want you to fix it in your minds because as we look at Israel, we always have to make... You have to say it because I won't remember to say it, but you say, look, is he talking about Judah? Is he talking about Ephraim? Okay. The Arabs, we're going to talk about, uh, I'm not sure uh, what we'll say, so we'll, we won't address it in more detail than that right at this moment. Uh, most of the information has been gathered from U.S. News and World Report, uh, other publications, global affairs, foreign affairs. Most of, it, most of this information has been given me by Clark, Brother Clark Williams, Brother Harold Thomas, Brother Darrell Pye. So that's the source of... I happen to subscribe to the U.S. News. Other than that, I'm indebted to information that they have supplied me with. Right, we're going to begin with the EEC. And that's the European Economic Community. And I suppose that has thrilled all of us because we know in 1991-92 there will be a unified Europe, or so they say it will be. Time magazine declares that whosoever governs a united Europe will control the strongest economic empire in the world. Okay? I have an article here from Brother Clark that says, the EC is from the Wall Street Journal in June, on June 28th of 89. It says, the EC takes a giant step on monetary union as Britain accepts the broad objective. Leaders of 12 European community nations took a quantum leap beyond current plans for a unified marketplace by agreeing to the objectives of monetary union, which likely will lead to a centralized economic decision-making and a single European currency. 
by removing most in internal European trade barriers by the end of 1982. Uh, it says it will be ambitious and potentially divisive than the continuing task of not removing them. This is because it will require substantial transfer of power over economic and fiscal policies from the 12 national governments to new, still undefined, Europe-wide institutions. Uh, this will be if you'd like to read it. Brother Clark puts on it, how does this think, how do you think this may fit with prophecy. It appears to be a natural progression toward an easily aligned group of nations as one unified. I think that's, a, that's the observation. Uh, I commented on to this began in 1957 with the signing of the Treaty of Rome. We would call to your attention that the Treaty of Rome was signed by all members signing were Catholic, Roman Catholic followers after signing, they had lunch with the Pope at the Vatican. Brothers and sisters, that's important. Now, we would also comment that the European community president, whose name is Delores, I think it's Jacques Delores, he was raised in a Catholic family and was once served as an altar boy, if any of you know what that means. Well, anyway, what we want to show you is that it is, they are very tightly knit. Now, you know, you think a moment for 12 nations with, in fact, if we look back in 1983, you remember France and Germany were both quibbling about the European economic community. Well, they, the nationalism was overriding their willingness to commit themselves to this project. Well, since 83, we've moved on a straight line toward the, the unification of Europe. Changing attitudes between Western Europe from a nationalistic position have apparently brought the European economic community together. We note with interest that the alignment of countries of the Eastern Bloc, East Germany, Hungary, Romania, with the Western NATO group, Germany, France, Spain, Austria, and Italy, and we would suggest that you, we might even think in terms of this may well be the beginning of those, those two Roman legs. Remember of Nebuchadnezzar's image, which we'll talk about. But I think what we need to really realize that, you know, Europe, not only East Europe, but Western Europe, NATO and the Warsaw Pact, if you want to think in terms of that militarily, they're coming together. And, you know, we thought about the nationalism of the last decade, and the only word that comes to my mind, or the thought that comes to my mind is, man proposes and God disposes. It's moving according to the historical timetable. Right, I want to take a moment and I can see I'm not going to, I think I won't take a moment. Uh, Brother Thomas in Elpis Israel clearly on pages 337, 436, and 327 foretold of this time. Okay? No question. He saw it and he foretold of it. Okay, let's talk about the, the Pope for a moment. I think significantly he addressed, and think about this, he addressed the 518 seat European Parliament with the theme. And this was his theme when he spoke to this European Parliament, which is already in its formulative stages. One unified Christian Europe. By the way, and I laughed when I read this, Ian Paisley was dragged from the building yelling 
Antichrist. I hope all y'all know who Ian Paisley is. Do you? I hate, no, don't hold up hands. Ian Paisley is a Protestant leader from Scotland, I believe, uh, who has been fiercely anti-Catholic as Britain is, and, and the church, and particularly in the Irish uh, sector, have moved toward back toward the their home, okay? And, you know, I happen to think that, you know, Christadelphians, if we got any left in Britain, uh, other than Brother Pierce, should have been, you know, yelling with Ian, Pierce, with Ian Paisley. But they probably weren't. They were there probably applauding John Paul II as he rode through uh, the, the, the country, the countryside, telling them that, it, that England was his nat their natural home. You know, this guy doesn't miss a trick. Okay, secondly... Well, that's a visit to Vatican, saying solidarity could not have existed without support of John Paul II. Now, most of us will recall the, the change in Poland from, really, it's a labor movement, into the church. And if you ever saw a picture of Waleka, you always saw behind him a picture of the Pope. Now, this is also church-supporting revolution today in, in South America. I think in Brazil, which is, and I was surprised to see this, Brazil, they said, was the largest Catholic country in the world. All right, three, the Pope, who is Polish, has high-level Vatican diplomats meeting with Russian church leaders. The purpose is to work on commonality of ideas. So think about it. You know, here's, now we have not only, you know, these two getting together, you know, we're getting this guy down here. I want you to think. See, that's exactly where we're moving toward Nebuchadnezzar's image standing upon its feet. We're not going to have time today, but I'm going to tell you, this group's going to be in that too. And that will be the reenactment of the Gargan host. Okay, which we'll, we'll come to it. All right, many remarks that we read indicate the Pope's support of Russia is imminent. In fact, negotiations are already beginning to, for the Pope to travel to, to Moscow. And they will, well, there he and Mr. Gorbachev will work toward what Mr. Gorbachev has said. And we, have, we, we want to read it. Here's what he says. He sees a, a Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. He, here's his statement in, in the book, and it's on page 191. And maybe I'll read it. He says, we are Europeans. Old Russia was united with Europe by Christianity. And the millennia of its arrival in the land of our ancestors will be marked next year. He wrote this book in 87. The history of Russia is an organic part of the great European history. The Russians, Ukrainians, and I won't read the others, it's the Estonians, the Carols, the whole group, all have made sizable contributions to the development of European civilization. Okay, so we see again the movement. Now, an a couple of interesting facts, I thought. There are estimates it, it, last year, 88 and 89, there have been 1,600 new congregations registered in Russia, mostly Russian Orthodox. Think, 1,600. Now, the estimates are that there are 70, well, this is what the Pope has announced, that there are 70 million believers in the USSR. To put that in proper perspective, there are 19 million Communist Party members. Okay? 
70 million. Gorbachev support in NATO, NATO, that's the other part of Europe, you know, is 70 percent. Bush has gone to 30 percent. Gorbachev, he met with the patriarch of the USSR church the last couple of months. This was the first meeting between the Roman, I mean the, the Russian leader and the patriarch of the church since 1943. 1943, Stalin met with him, and, and, and guess what Stalin met with him for? He wanted to get Christian support against Hitler. So you think about it. If he got 70 million members of the, Rome, of, the, of the Christian church in Russia, he needs support. That's 20% of the, 20, 25% of the population. Okay, now as we think about that, we, we see this alignment. We also <coughs> think about Russia and their reduction, reduction of their military, or at least what they claim is reduction of military. They claim that from Europe they will remove 500,000 men, 10,000 tanks, and 8,500 artillery. Of course, they're using this to negotiate the U.S., the United States, to cut out on what they've got there. Same point. They are building a new naval base at Tartus on the Syrian coast. Remember we, and that's a, how much time I've got. Uh, remember Syria, Syria touches Turkey, and just west of Aleppo, they are building this major Russian base. Now, uh, I wanted to read from a, a this is from Global Affairs, which is written by a guy named Yohanan Ramati, uh, who is a director of the Jerusalem Institute for Western Defense in Israel. It's called Moscow and Damascus, and I, I'm not going to have a chance to read a lot of it today, but I, I will tomorrow, because I think it's so important, the, and the bottom line of this is that while Russia wants to strengthen themselves in, in Syria, is to cause the fall of Turkey, okay? And you know, if you remember, the American press has said nothing about Turkey for you know a long time. But Russia, as you can see, that's been their goal, you know, for years. So Turkey comes into this colossus to do it. Russia has got to foster relations with Damascus or with the Syrians, and, and you know, reading what's going on between the Russians and the Syrians and the other Arabic people, along with the United States, is, is almost like reading, you know, Alice in Wonderland. You know, it's a, a fairy tale. It's unreal as to how the international politics is moving to accomplish God's purpose. Okay? Uh, typically, here was a headline in a Richmond paper, <coughs> Syria given six months to get out of Lebanon. So we suddenly see the conflict of the Arabs. We have enormous conflicts well, between the Arabic people. It's so complex, you know, and the initials are so, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit. And about all I have learned is that whenever I see FLP, I know what it means. It means, I don't, I've forgotten. <laughs> Frontier for the Liberation of Palestine. 
But look, they put all kinds of stuff in front of it. You know, it's one is called the, the Damascus uh, group. There's a group that's called the... Uh, then, the then behind it, they add another name. They say GC. That means General uh, Command. And remember, all these are fighting among themselves. In fact, I will, tomorrow we'll read a, a headline from one of them. It says the only people that the that the hatred of the Arab for another faction of Arabs is as great as his hatred for Israel. So you can see the divisiveness. So we think of the divisiveness in Israel, but we also have to talk about the divisiveness in the Arabic world. But let's remember one thing if we remember nothing else. This is all moving toward the final destruction of the kingdom of men. And they will all be aligned. There isn't going to be any of them of that group that are not going to be in that old Gargian empire which will be a a restanding of Nebuchadnezzar's image in its Babylonian, its Medo-Persian, its Grecian, and its Roman image. Now remember the Roman image is very complex because he, we, have hit, we have horns, we have toes, we have a depiction of, of that over a 2,000 year period. But ultimately it all comes together, stands upon its feet, and the multitudinous Christ will destroy it. Now, again, remember, it's, two, it's a two-pronged battle. Firstly, with Russia upon the mountains of Israel. Our brother spoke of this morning in Ezekiel 38-39. And secondly, the destruction of the ten horns when they give that power to the beast for one hour. That's a subsequent event. Between those events will be the conflicts in the south and the reestablishment of the mustard seed kingdom in the city of Jerusalem 